1: Hey, it's Dave Breckenridge, host of Ten Three. I recently told you about a fascinating new podcast from my colleagues at Post Media and Antica Productions. It's called True Crime Byline, and it looks at some of the most high-profile criminal cases in the country and what it was like for the journalists who covered them. The show's now available wherever you're hearing my voice, but have a listen to the first episode right here. This isn't a story about Robert Picton.
0: Hey, just a quick heads up that this podcast contains content that some people might find disturbing. So, please take care while listening. I think it's fair to say that true crime is having a moment. Ever since the Blockbuster podcast serial came out in 2014, it feels like not a week goes by where there isn't a true crime podcast at the top of the charts. But with few exceptions, the stories we hear on our favorite true crime podcasts have been reported somewhere else first. Often a dogged newspaper reporter has been following the story for months, or even years before a podcast team shows up with their microphones. But what we don't really hear about is what it's actually like to do that work, to knock on doors and talk to witnesses, to sit in courtrooms for months on end and get to know the victim's family, to grapple with the hard ethical questions about what to publish and what to leave out. When you write a story for a newspaper or a magazine, you get credited with something called a byline. That's the little bit of text just underneath the headline with the author's name. So in this podcast, we want to go behind the byline to talk to journalists about the stories that made their careers, the cases that changed the way they see the world, and the crimes that continue to haunt them. I'm Kathleen Goldhar, and from Post Media and Antica Productions, this is True Crime Byline. Lori Colbert is no stranger to covering crime. In the 90s, she crossed the country as a crime reporter. And those experiences sharpened her instincts as an investigative journalist. So in 2001, when she and two colleagues started to investigate a tip about women disappearing from Vancouver's downtown east side, they had a feeling that something was very wrong. What they didn't know then was that they had begun an investigation into the most prolific serial killer in Canadian history, a man whose crimes would spur a national reckoning about the way our justice system and our media organizations view society's most vulnerable. Today, Lori Colbert is a reporter with the Vancouver Sun. So... Tell me about 2001. What stories did you start covering?
1: Well, I have to say back in 2001, um, I was working at the Vancouver Sun. I was a general crime reporter. And my colleague, Lindsay Kynes, actually approached me and another one of our colleagues, Kim Bolin, to work with him on some tips that he had received about uh, there being more women missing from the downtown east side than police had initially said.
0: How how long had these women been disappearing before you guys started looking into it?
1: Oh, some of them had been gone since the late 1960s and some had been gone for just a couple of months. There was um, quite a large gap in time.
0: And and tell me about the instincts you guys had. You're told these women are disappearing, but obviously your colleague had an idea that something else was going on. What were you thinking as the core group of the three of you about what was really going on compared to what the police were saying?
1: Well— what the police were saying publicly was you know not to worry there is nothing to see here but privately there was a couple of police officers who were quite frustrated by the very slow pace that the department uh, was moving on in this case. And so what was really crucial for us is that one officer in particular was so concerned about the lack of attention being given to this missing women that this officer started working with us, uh, started providing us with some directions, some tips to start investigating, because this officer just felt that if the police weren't going to put, you know, the proper emphasis on this, that perhaps the media could could get something done.
0: Tell me more about these women who were disappearing. A bit about sort of the area that they were disappearing from and who they were.
1: So the area they were disappearing from is quite a small um, area near Vancouver's downtown east side. It's the oldest part of the city, uh, and as a result, it ha- it is filled with um, small old hotels with um, these quite run-down rooms that are very cheap to rent, that were originally built 50, 60, 70 years ago for uh, blue-collar workers who are in Vancouver, mainly working in the resource industry. this neighborhood at one point in time had been Vancouver's jewel. Uh, It was the banking and commerce area of the city, but it had fallen on quite hard times as Vancouver grew in a different area of the city. And so it had become the place where quite impoverished people were living—they were living in these run-down hotels. There were soup kitchens um, and various organizations who supported people with uh, drug addictions. Um, you know, there were welfare offices, and there was also a quite vibrant prostitution scene in the downtown east side. Many of the women on the missing women list, which in 2001, stood at 31 names, were sex trade workers. Um, Many of them had substance abuse problems, and they were supporting their drug habits by selling sex.
0: And because of their work, because of where they lived, there was a history of people from this neighborhood, but specifically women from this neighborhood, being overlooked by the police. Their lives didn't register often as them being missing or anything like that, correct?
1: I think it's very fair to say that these very vulnerable women were a low priority. And I don't mean just for the police department. I mean, for politicians, quite frankly, for members of the media, Um, you know, it was perhaps not a demographic that society cared a lot about at the time. Uh, They didn't have any power. Their families, for the most part, didn't have a lot of money and therefore didn't have a lot of power. And no one was truly paying attention to these women that were slowly starting to disappear from the streets. There were advocates in the neighborhood raising alarms, but even their voices weren't loud enough at the time to raise a lot of concern amongst the public.
0: Even and I and I'm not saying this as any kind of like shake my finger at you, but like, what about you? Had you not noticed as much until you were working on the stories? Or is this something as like a journalist in the neighborhood that you had already kind of been paying attention to?
1: I would say I was as guilty as everybody else. Um, I'd only been in Vancouver for four years at that point. Uh, I'd moved there from Ontario. But when I was in Ontario, uh, I did cover the Paul Bernardo-Carla Humalka case. So I, I, I was aware that there were evil people lurking in society that we needed to be aware of. But honestly most of the crime stories i had covered at that point for the vancouver sun did involve victims that for one reason or another society had deemed to be more important than these women who were disappearing from the streets of the downtown east side
0: yeah and i and i lived there for a few months too and i remember the downtown east side is a scary place if you don't live there and know the people specifically it's not the kind of place that you'd find yourself going very often
1: it's a very interesting neighborhood because from maybe your first impression, it's a scary place. But if you spend just a bit of time down there, uh, the the people are warm and welcoming and kind. Um, I mean, they are living desperate, desperate lives. But... If you spend just a tiny bit of time down there, you suddenly realize that they're a very caring society. Everyone down in that neighborhood cares desperately for each other. They just don't have the means to, at least in 2001, they didn't have the means to make things better for themselves.
0: So back to the work that you guys were doing, as part of this three-person team, what role did you take on?
1: Well, Lindsay Kynes had the direct connection to the police officer who had become a very important, crucial source for the story. Uh, Kim Bolin had also been a longtime crime reporter for The Sun and had uh, very good contacts with police officers and politicians. I was kind of the new kid on the block, so um, what I did is focused on trying to find out as much as I could about the women, both those currently on the list, but most importantly, the ones whose names were leaked to us by the police as women who should be added to the list at that time. Uh, In... September of 2001, the police list stood at 31 names, and our sources told us there was at least 14 more women that should be added to that list.
0: When you think back to those stories that we were writing at the beginning, the women and their families, what sticks out?
1: It it still makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up when I think about those conversations. I got the list of the new 14 names. Um, I I didn't know where to start, but I, you know, started phoning people in the phone book with the same last names and Googling. And time and time again, when I would finally reach a mother or a sister or a brother or a cousin, they would say to me, I reported so-and-so missing five years ago, seven years ago, 10 years ago. And you're the first person who's called me to talk to me about them.
0: Wow. I mean, were you bringing them information that they didn't know? Or were they just, was it more that they were relieved that finally somebody beyond their immediate family and community was paying attention to this, the family member who had gone missing?
1: Yeah, at this point, I didn't have any new information to bring to them. Um, I just said that we were reporters and that we were looking into a possible expansion of the list. Um, You know, we, the police officers who were speaking to us, were concerned that there could be one or more serial killers in the neighborhood. But there was certainly no evidence yet that that was the case. Um, But these families were desperate to not just share information about their loved ones, but to know what, if anything, was happening with a search for a possible killer.
0: So those were the cops that were talking to you guys because you had the contacts and it was sort of not the official conversation the police were having with the public. When did that shift? When did the police start to take the disappearances of these women more seriously?
1: Well, I should tell you that you're correct. These police officers were talking to us unofficially because at the time in 2001, uh, both the police department and the politicians were saying publicly that these women were transient because of what they did for a living. They were sex trade workers. You know they must have just picked up and moved to Calgary or Kelowna or Seattle and they were just selling sex in a different neighborhood. But what we found out in our investigation by speaking to advocates and family members is that these very vulnerable women worked a very specific street corner or perhaps a very specific block of the downtown east side and never left that area because that's where their income was. Their regular customers would know which block they worked on. They would pick up their welfare checks every month from the exact same social services agency. You know, maybe they were on methadone uh, and they would always pick up their methadone from the exact same clinic that they maintain connections with their families but in different ways maybe they always called on mother's day maybe they always called on their kids birthdays but in every single one of the cases of the women on the list and the new 14 we were investigating everything had stopped no longer were they showing up to pick up their methadone or their welfare checks they were no longer phoning their families and when we reported in um, our first series in September of 2001, some of these findings, at that point in time, things started to shift a little bit with a public conversation around this case. I'm so struck
0: by what journalists at their best do. Good journalists go in and find the humanity and find the people and the individuals and the relationships and then that in turn changes the way other people think about this stuff. So I feel like this story just shows how important good journalism is to a society. If it wasn't for you guys saying here's a person who has a mother who calls her every mother's day and has stopped, they still just become a street worker in the downtown east side. But putting that human touch on that person makes such a big difference to even the police and whether or not they're going to investigate something. Do you still think about sort of the efforts you guys did and how important that was both to like what the police were doing and how it, it changed the way they were looking at this case and the way that we as readers and just society was looking at this.
1: I think for sure what, what we really tried to do in the series is not just show that there should be more attention being paid to this case by police and by politicians. But what we also tried to do is, is try to make society care about the outcome of this case by showing that these women, these victims, were just regular people like you and I. They had fallen on hard times, but, you know, Georgina Papin, for example, who was one of the new 14 women that we were looking into, when she disappeared, she had six kids. And her brother, Rick Pappen, when I first called him, he said to me that he thought that Georgina's disappearance was overlooked because of where she came from. She was Aboriginal, she was poor, but she had these six kids who adored her. She had a giant, extended family who loved her. And he said to me, you know, people like my sister are expendable people just don't care about her and he meant of course people in society but you know there is a a massive network of people who cared about Georgina they cared desperately about her and that's what we were trying to show in our stories.
0: Did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. As women continued to go missing, police narrowed down a long list of suspects, eventually landing on a man named Robert Picton.
1: So can you tell me about him? So Robert Picton. And his brother Dave Picton owned a farm in the middle of a Vancouver suburb uh, called Port Coquitlam, and the family, the Picton family, had had the farm for many generations, and the city of Port Coquitlam had grown up around it. So, it was it was quite an unusual piece of property because it was uh, you know several acres that of a farm that was surrounded by new homes and townhouses. Don't picture a very rural farm. It was a very, very urban farm. And also don't picture a picturesque pastures with wheat growing. It was um, a cluttered, garbage-strewn farm filled with broken down equipment and um, ramshackle outbuildings and a rundown house that Dave Pickton lived in and a derelict trailer that Willie Pickton, Robert Pickton, everyone called him Willie Pickton, lived in. And then um, an old slaughterhouse where the Pickton brothers slaughtered pigs
0: Despite it being run down, the brothers came from money, right?
1: Oh, yes. The family came from money, absolutely. I mean, the property was worth millions and their family had always had money. Um, they just, these two brothers had let the farm fall into disrepair, but they were still running what appeared to be a fairly thriving business from it.
0: Had his name come up in any of your reporting?
1: Not specifically, Um, what happened is uh, after our first series of stories was published in September of 2001, uh, there was a bit more money provided to the police task force looking into the missing women.
0: The missing women's task force was jointly run by the RCMP and the Vancouver police.
1: There was a bit more kind of public urgency placed on the story
0: police told them that they had more than 600 suspects and were a long way from finding the person responsible.
1: You know, they were quite honest at the time that, unfortunately, there's a lot of men in society that are um, violent towards sex trade workers. So, unfortunately, the, the list was pretty long. We had heard rumors that there was a pig farmer that, you know, we should keep an eye on, but he, his name did not surface for us specifically. And quite frankly, it wasn't high on the police list either.
0: It wasn't high, but eventually, like, can you tell me how he sort of did become the main suspect, how that all came to be?
1: Yes, it was accidental. It was an accidental arrest of Canada's most prolific serial killer. There was a young RCMP officer who was very eager um, hard worker and he really wanted to get ahead in his career and he he had a source um, from inside the criminal world that told him there were some illegally stored firearms on this pig farm. It's the type of tip that, you know, officers have told me that more seasoned officers might have just shrugged their shoulders at and not pursued. Uh, But this young officer was quite determined to make a name for himself. And so he went to a justice of the peace and he got a search warrant to go on to the Picton Farm to look for these um, uh, allegedly uh, illegal or improperly stored firearms. And so the... Missing Women Task Force, they had been flagged about this farm, so even though Pickton wasn't high on their list, they, they became aware that this young officer was going to be walking on with this search warrant. So they were just monitoring what he was doing. And um, he walked into Willie Pickton's trailer with this search warrant for these illegal guns. and. The first few things he saw in the trailer were women's shoes, women's purses, and then some ID. And he read out the names on the ID um, into the, you know, the police communication system, and they were a hit for two of the women on the missing women list. The task force said, you know, get off the farm, like leave immediately, because they, they, you know, they didn't want anything in the scene compromised. And that's how they accidentally stumbled upon Willie Picton being responsible for this case.
0: And then what did they do? Did they look into who he was? Like, did he have a history with the police?
1: Well, he had a, he had a small history with the police because his family had money, his criminal record or his ties to being violent with sex trade workers was not on the public record. Um, there was quite an infamous case that we discovered later on uh, after Picton had become arrested that there was a sex trade worker who had come onto his farm who uh, who cannot be identified because of a court order now, but um, he got handcuffed on her hand and she was terrified. Uh, she got into a knife fight with Picton. She stabbed him, he stabbed her back. Um, she was naked and managed to run from the farm so you can imagine, she flagged down a car on the road, she's, she's covered in her blood and his blood, she has a handcuff dangling from her hand. She still has the butcher knife in her hand that she used to stab him. And uh, the person that, that stopped the car to pick her up takes her to the uh, hospital. And in the hospital, uh, police are called and Picton is arrested with assaulting her, but he hires a very, very good defense lawyer, arguably one of the city's best defense lawyers, who ultimately gets those charges stayed. The defense lawyer argues that this woman sex trade worker, that it's her word against his word, and that he is an upstanding citizen with no criminal record, and she is a sex trade worker with a drug habit, and, um, and that she would be an unreliable witness on the witness stand. So, you know, that one charge that might have really flagged for the police that Picton that was someone capable of being violent towards sex trade workers, that charge was stayed. He was never convicted of that. You know, as a result, you know, his knowledge to to police was really minuscule at the time.
0: What happens next? What do they find on the farm? You know, what do they need to do before they finally arrest him?
1: So members of the Missing Women Task Force get their own search warrant to enter the farm. And on February the 5th of 2002, they enter the farm and start searching. And they find enough evidence to charge Picton with two counts of first-degree murder. And initially in those first two weeks, they find women's clothing scattered throughout the trailer that he lives in, Uh, women's ID, women's purses, women's makeup, uh, medicine bottles with prescriptions on them bearing women's names. And um, they make similar findings in the many decrepit outbuildings um, that are on the property. Again, like, you know, they'd go into the attic of one of these outbuildings and they'd find bags of women's clothing and tubes of lipstick and purses and all sorts of things um, just just scattered everywhere on the property.
0: And what what is he charged with initially?
1: Well, he's initially, in February of 2002, charged with two counts of first-degree murder. And... What happened after that is that the farm became the largest DNA search site in Canadian history. The police brought in excavators. They dug up, they tore down every building on the property and they dug up all the land. They brought in archaeology students, you know, looking at... Rocks and bones and different things that would be dug up from the ground, and they would they were the experts that would say whether this bone was a human bone or an animal bone or not a bone at all. And everything was bagged and um, sent to DNA testing labs all across the country. BC couldn't handle this case on all on its own, so eventually. As all of that evidence was tested, uh, the murder counts against Pickton grew from 2 to 26.
0: Unbelievable. And I think I need to put a sort of a bit of a trigger warning here before I ask this next question. But the police didn't find bodies, really, did they?
1: No. No, they didn't. For six of the women, they found various types of bones. In some cases, a hand bone. Um, In two of the most gruesome examples, uh, they did find skulls for two of the women in a freezer. Um, But there were no complete bodies at all on the farm. And for 20 of the women, there weren't bones at all. Uh, There was hair. There was DNA on You know, blood splatters um, or DNA on a lipstick, um, you know, again, incredibly gruesome DNA on ground meat found inside of a freezer, but there were no complete bodies.
0: Because he disposed of them. Is that what happened?
1: Well, we don't know exactly. Um, I sat through a two-year trial uh, where I listened to every single piece of evidence that was gathered by the prosecutors. And there there are theories that he might have taken the bodies to a rendering plant where he would take, um, you know, the portions of the pig that couldn't be consumed. Um, there are theories that potentially he ground up the pieces of the bodies on the farm, but we quite frankly just don't know. They're all theories. All I can tell you for sure is that um, there were no complete bodies found on the farm.
0: As you mentioned, you sat through so many hours of that trial. So you've started reporting on these women when they were just considered either missing or transient and just moved on. You've profiled them, you've met their families, you reported on everybody shifting to realizing something bad was actually happening, and then the arrest and everything that went on on the farm. And then you end up sitting in a courtroom five years after your first story and covering a man who the police say did this and killed this many women. What was that like for you to be sitting there and just sort of seeing this come to be?
1: Well, I sat every day, about maybe five feet away from Picton. He was inside a bulletproof kind of glass, and I was in the first row. I sat right behind him. I would watch him every day, like doodling on a piece of paper. And... um, if, as a reporter, as a journalist, you know, we're really supposed to remain neutral. And the, our coverage of stories, we're not to take sides. And I found that a really big challenge in this case. I had come to know almost all of the families of these women. Um, they were decent people who had been let down by a system. They were desperately seeking some kind of justice and some kind of affirmation that their loved ones were worthy, uh, that they were good people, that they were going to be missed. And I would sit day after day beside this man who was short and skinny with stringy hair. I I couldn't figure out him at all. Uh, He didn't look like a big, bulky killer at all. He looked like a little shriveled up, older man with thinning, balding hair. And I couldn't make this case make sense.
0: Have you ever come any closer to
1: having it make sense to you? No, not at all. Um, The prosecutors called several female witnesses to the stand during the trial and they were former sex trade workers from the downtown east side and they testified that Picton was really sweet to them that he uh, would drive them out to the farm he would give them money give them food give them clothing sometimes he'd give them money even if they didn't have sex with him he would drive them back to the downtown east side he also had friends who testified that he was a nice person there was, something clearly in this man that um, there was a trigger switch because he we can see from the evidence at the trial was a cruel monster to the women who he killed and yet other people said that he was you know kind and generous um, and compassionate no I can't figure this case out
0: The trial went on for nearly two years. The Crown called 98 witnesses. In the end, the jury found Picton guilty of six counts of second-degree murder.
1: So I was sitting in the courtroom, uh, obviously, on the day of the verdict. And when the jury stood up, the court clerk said, how do you find the defendant on the count of first-degree murder uh, you know, for the first victim, and the jury foreman said, "Not guilty." And um behind me were all of the victims' families, and they started screaming and sobbing. And i I have to say it was just I, I felt nauseous. And then the court clerk said, "How do you find the defendant on the?" On the lesser charge of second degree murder, and they said guilty and went through that six times over for the six victims that were at the center of this trial. And the difference between first and second degree murder is that first degree murder is a premeditated act, and second degree murder is something that wasn't intentional. And I, I, I can't tell you because in Canada, we can't interview jurors. So I cannot tell you what was going through their minds. But what I can tell you is that sitting through this two-year trial, Picton had an unbelievably amazing defense team. This set of defense lawyers were top notch and they provided him with a stellar defense. Um, they raised reasonable doubt on um, multiple things uh, that the prosecution put forward. and But most importantly, they got key pieces of evidence struck from the trial that um, I, I wonder if the jury had heard about those pieces of evidence that were struck, if you know, maybe that first-degree conviction might have happened. Uh, we, we can't ever know. But uh, I do, I, I tell people all the time that Picton's defense lawyers were amazing, and they did a good job for him.
0: So what kind of a sentence did Picton get, and will he ever get out?
1: So he got a life sentence, um, 25 years, and it's unlikely that he will ever get out, um, He was in his 60s when he was convicted. He's not a healthy man. He has hepatitis C and he's got no chance of parole for 25 years. Uh, I highly doubt he'll see the light of day. This case
0: unleashed a movement leading to federal and provincial inquiries and all coming up with grand ideas of moving the country forward in terms of how women, especially Indigenous women, are seen and dealt with in this country. Can you tell me about those efforts to make things change here?
1: Yeah, so there was a provincial inquiry that occurred in um 2012 i believe and it was run by uh former supreme court justice wally opal and finally it allowed the voices of um family members who never felt that they got any justice to to tell their stories to tell how they weren't heard by police they weren't heard by society um and it, and it came with a, a number of recommendations for the provincial government to make changes um, around, you know, police funding, around um, services for women in the downtown east side. Um, and some of those recommendations were followed through with and um, you know, some of them still haven't been. I guess at the end of the day, this case um, hopefully has has opened the eyes of society that all victims are victims, um, and that they all deserve equal access to justice. Although when I say that, it sounds really naive because um, we know that vulnerable people continue to not have the same. Equal access to justice as people with, with with financial means.
0: Did any of the officials or anybody suffer real life consequences for how long it took? Let's say the police to start taking this seriously, for the media to start taking it seriously. Do you think there were any of those long term consequences?
1: No, I don't. I don't. I don't think there were any type of long term consequences at all. And um, I I think again, the people, the only people who suffered and continue to suffer are the survivors of the missing women. Um, remember that Pictim was charged with 26 counts of first degree murder, but the trial judge severed those counts. And so his first trial, he was tried on on just the six women who had different types of bones found at the farm and the reasoning there was that those six women could be grouped together and their evidence could be heard in one trial because it was a similar type of evidence because there were bones found. The trial judge said the next 20 victims uh, where there was just DNA found that they would be grouped together in a second trial Well, at the end of the first trial, where Picton was convicted and sentenced to life in prison, the justice system determined that there was no need to move forward with that second trial. And those 20 families never got justice, and and justice was all they had left. Uh, They didn't have their loved ones any longer. They certainly never felt that society was ever grieving for their missing loved ones. They they just they just wanted someone to say that this person was guilty of murdering you know or 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 having all the evidence aired in court you know like what what do police know about the last movements of their loved one what you know when was maybe the last day their loved one was alive what was the last thing she did who maybe who was the last person she talked to these are all questions they don't have answers to that they were hoping maybe they would find out at the second trial, but that second trial never happened. And so they never got justice there. They did get to air their voices at the provincial inquiry. But when you ask if there's ever been any repercussions from any of this, no, I don't think for officials there have been, but they're sure they they continue to this day for those families.
0: This is going to sound like a weird question, but are you
1: glad you covered this case? Um, I am glad I covered this case because I feel like Lindsay and Kim and I did what we could as reporters at the very beginning to shine light on it. And then I feel like over the years, between his arrest in 2002 and uh, to the verdict in 2007, and even after, that um, what I tried to do as a journalist Every time I wrote about this case was to put the women front and center as much as I could. I always, during the trial, made sure that in every story I listed the names of the six victims. It might have been in the last paragraph, but I always made sure with my word count that their names got listed in every story because at the end of the day, you know 20 years later everyone still knows Willie Pickton's name but can anybody list the names of those six women who got murdered and I, I, I just wanted their names to always be remembered day after day during that trial these who the women are and they're the important people in this story not Willie Pickton. So to that end do you want to list their names? Willie Picton was convicted of murdering Serena Abbotsway, Mona Wilson, Andrea Josberry, Georgina Pappen, Marnie Frey, and Brenda Wolfe. He was charged with murdering another 20 women, but never tried in a court of law. In addition to those 26, he was originally charged with murdering a 27th woman, but that count was stayed and never got to trial. And then the DNA of six more women were found on his farm. So that brings to 33 the um, number of women whose DNA was found on his farm.
0: next time on True Crime Byline. When Joe Breen covered his first murder trial, he made a shocking discovery. I found something else that didn't strike me quite as explosive as it ought to have. It was a scoop that would change the trajectory of Joe's career and alter the lives of the teenagers at the center of the trial. I was riding a high of confidence. This was. A high point for me in my professional life, and in a minute it was a nightmare. True Crime Byline is produced by Mitchell Stewart and me, Kathleen Goldhar. Our associate producer is Emily Morantz. Mixing and sound design by Mitchell Stewart. Graphics and artwork design by Bryce Hall. The executive producers for Post Media are Andrea Hill, Chris Gallipo, and Erica Tustin. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica Productions. Special thanks to Harold Monroe, the editor-in-chief of the Vancouver Sun, and Lucinda Choden, the senior vice president of editorial for Post Media.